Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 125. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 125 you're listening to. And that's always good to know that it's 125 and not 124 or 126, because if you're binge listening, you want to make sure you're on the right episode so you're not repeating episodes. And when you're fumbling with your mobile devices, which many of you are listening on, that can be frustrating depending on the interface. So I'm here to assure you, you are on 125. So welcome. Uh, My guest today has seen the music industry from a number of angles, and that is a unique quality that not all my guests have. Uh, He's seen it from the perspective of the artist. He's seen it from the perspective of producer, engineer, mixer. And he's also seen it from the perspective of A&R executive, which I don't think there's any of my guests that have seen it from that perspective. And I'm talking about Mr. Michael James, uh, who's worked with the New Radicals, Too Much Joy, Hole, L7, uh, Maya Sharp, A.J. Croce. Of course, that's just a sampling, but, you know, there's a, there's many others. So, yes, Michael James coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Universal Audio, of course, is a major sponsor of the show, and I want to make sure that you are aware that they're doing a pretty cool promo right now. If you are interested in getting one of their Apollo interfaces, they will give you up to $3,500 in UAD plugins for free uh, with your rack purchase, with your Apollo rack purchase. Uh, Runs until June 30th of 2017. So if you want to learn more, all you got to do is head on over to uaudio.com, scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page where it says Apollo Rack Dream Studio and click on learn more. That'll give you the whole explanation of what you can buy and this can be any combination whether you're buying one or a couple interfaces and it applies to their firewire and thunderbolt interfaces so i'd head over there and take advantage of that before june 30th if you're thinking about buying one of those interfaces make sure and head on over to uaudio.com so before we get into our interview with michael i want to just go on a little bit of a rant nothing too long but i want to say this You know, we have a lot of different listeners, and so I'm just going to say this to all of you, um, from the student all the way to the hardened professional, if you think you're the smartest person in the room all the time and you have nothing left to learn, you've heard us say it on the show before, then, you know, there's no point in going on here, and you could just pause the show and move on to the next podcast. Uh, Maybe there's a podcast for smartest person in the room all the time. But if um, you do realize that no matter where you're at in your career, there's always something to learn. There's always some new technique or there's always some inspiration around the corner from somebody. So uh, case in point, I spent the weekend not doing any audio. That's not entirely true, actually. I did I did do a little bit of testing, we'll say. But I had a really great time watching a video by my friend Andrew Sheps that really just kicked my ass, I got to say. Really, really inspirational on a number of levels. Spending time watching, reading, educating yourself, whether it's from, you know, somebody we know or somebody we hope to know someday or whoever, just digesting information uh, that really inspires you, I think, is so valuable. 
and and it could be time spent with a mentor. It could be an article, a video. It could be a podcast, right? Huh? Obviously, we need to spend time with our loved ones, our families, our significant others, anybody in our life that's important like that. That's, of course, critical. But when you have got some time to yourself and it's time to sit down and, you know, the choice between watching some mindless television, not like I have a problem with mindless television, believe me, I've watched plenty of it. But I think time spent, like I said, doing the doing those things that we mentioned really can do something to us mentally in a positive way that can really kick our ass. I had that experience this weekend, just sitting, watching this video of our friend Andrew. And um, the things that he talked about were not groundbreaking, but they were certainly inspirational. And, you know, it can be a quote, it can be um, a technique, it can be a few words of wisdom that can really set us off to a new direction of trying different things and really getting the fire in your belly and keeping it going. So yeah, where am I going with this? Good question. The point is, is that if you're feeling kind of uh, in a rut or even if you're feeling on top of the world, educate yourself and continue to inform yourself by your, whether it's your peers or your heroes or whatever, I think that is super duper important. I know it's a simple message, but you know, it leads to great things. And I think that that's really important. Maybe you're going through a down period where there's not a lot of work. Maybe you're just feeling uninspired uh, or maybe, you know, life's a bowl of cherries for you right now. And you're just continually working. Even if you are continually working, uh, don't get wrapped up in your own self too much. Uh, keep the inspiration from the outside coming in. And it doesn't always have to be audio inspiration. You know, it can be inspiration from other sources. It can be books you read, movies you see, all kinds of different things. So just trying to put the point out there that there's always something cool to learn and there's always inspiration around the corner. So don't let it pass you by, by occupying your time with things that don't inspire you. Really focus on the things that do, because I think that, uh, that inspiration, that spark could lead to the next breakthrough for your career or for you, for your growth as an individual. Really think about that. So that's my rant. Take from it what you will. And uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Well, with that in mind, I will quit talking and we will get to a fantastic interview here with our friend, Michael James. So let's do that. Michael James here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for doing it. It's actually quite an honor, I must say. You know, I just love what you do, and I think it's such a great service. I wish I would have had access to this when I was coming up in the business. There's a lot of good information on here that people dish out, and I'm I'm uh, happy to have you on because I, I bet you have some good information to dish out. Yeah, but none of it's going to be true. <laughs> this whole <laughs> interview is just made up. It's it's like like Mr. Spock from Star Trek saying, everything I say is a lie. Yeah. So I think half of it's going to end up on the editing floor up to this point, but... Uh, <laughs> so I want to point out to the audience, you are, and I'm not trying to make a joke here. I mean, you work in a hybrid manner in your studio when you mix, but as a person, as a talent, you're kind of a hybrid mixture because mm -hmm. you're an artist, you are an engineer and a producer, and you've been a label person. I have, you yes. Have. But unlike uh, many recording engineers who sit on their butts all day 
you're an avid bike rider too. Absolutely. And, and so avid that I actually refer to myself as a cyclist instead of a biker. Ah. And I shave my legs and my wife digs it. Try it. Chicks will dig you more. Dudes <laughs> will dig you more. Um, gender fluid will dig you more. <laughs> you were professional or are professional, correct? I was professional for about 15 minutes. Isn't that what Warhol said? We all get our 15 minutes. You had your 15 minutes of professionalism? Exactly. Back in 1990, I went pro and was fortunate enough to uh, represent the U.S., uh, not as a national team member, but you know, just as a uh, freelancer who um, qualified for the world championships. So I actually competed in them, and I was really good locally and regionally. Let's just say that uh, when I showed up to the big day, I was kind of average. You know, everybody huh. there was average except maybe five or six guys out of 130. Pretty interesting awakening, and not really unlike the record business. Even in, in the glory days of, of the major labels, you know, you frequently had one album paying for nine dogs. And, and you know, certainly at the World Championships um, in mountain biking, there were no dogs. There were a lot of really good dogs. And then there were just a few who were a cut above. And it's just like, you know, like we see in the world all the time. You know, not everybody's a billionaire. Not everybody, uh, you know, can have the super big hit records like, Taylor Swift or Katy Perry, nobody, not everybody can change the landscape like the Beatles did. I'm curious how the world of cycling and the mindset and what you, what you love about that, what the parallels are to making records. That's a great question, Matt. I actually think of it more like a yin-yang kind of thing than a parallel. It's kind of like the one sort of fills in for the other as uh -huh. opposed to going alongside it. In the record business... I don't know if you had the same experience, but when you got in, maybe you just did it because you loved making music, right? And you wanted to hang out with your friends and create something cool. And then at, at some point, things change and you realize that you can make a living at it. Then you may still have the fun, but you end up getting a lot of pressure and a lot of chaos. And now specifically, the thing where there's sort of the yin to the yang here is that in a bike race, if you cross the line first, you win. If you cross 52nd, you get 52nd place. If you cross 300th, that's the place you get, right? In the record business, you could make the greatest record of all time and you could run it past an A&R person. And if that person isn't feeling it on that day because of whatever reason, maybe, you know, bad Wheaties, you know, for breakfast or, or you know, they just had another deal fall through or, you know, a spat with a lover or whatever you know, that can ruin your career. It can, it can stall right there if you don't have thick skin and you're not willing to ask another person or another hundred people to take a chance on you. There's also another thing about the record business. When I went pro, it was not uncommon to work 14 to 16 hours a day at first, right? And now, you know, I do what I got to do when I have to do it. But, you know, the, the thought was always that you're, you kind of jump right into the fast lane and it's like a conveyor belt on top of the fast lane. And if you, how do I say this? If you, if you pause for a moment, you can fall off. And after you get up to speed there, it can be really tough to jump in. Just like, you know, you never want to say no to a gig because uh, if you didn't show up on one day, there was always somebody eager to mm -hmm. take your place. But, you know, in the bicycle racing, you have to have balance. 
you know, even if you wanted to train 65 hours a week, you couldn't do it because recovery is just as important to building muscle strength as your actual workout is. You know, you're going to break down these muscle fibers. You have to give them time to heal. And in many ways, making a record is that way. You know, you, you do what you got to do. You find the artist and then sometimes it's love at first sight, but because you've taken an interest now, maybe somebody else takes an interest. Maybe that person is a better schmoozer than you may, may not even, may not even get the band, but it's like, oh shit, Matt or Michael is interested in this band. Well, we better jump on it because they know something and I got to find out what it is. So now they jump in and, you know, maybe sweet talk the band. So now all of a sudden you're competing with somebody for something that you just, you just wanted to help out, right? You just wanted to participate in something that was cool. Now you find yourself competitively dealing with it. And then all of a sudden you don't have enough money to make the record. So you work longer days. And then if you can't tell the band that it really does behoove them to stop at 10 hours, you know, everybody's different, right? But let's just use 10, 10 hours for the uh, sake of argument. You tell them like, trust me, you'll be better tomorrow if we stop at 10 hours. If we go to 11, you're only going to get three in tomorrow. You have to pace yourself. So in the record business, you don't always pace yourself. Whereas making a, a you know, training for a bike race, you have to pace yourself uh, also during the race. Obviously, we have many different aspects to the record making process, but everything from pre-production all the way down to mastering. Is there any particular segment of the process that you enjoy more or most? It's kind of like, kind of all one thing on one hand, but but yeah, I don't know if there's one particular thing because I do look at it very organically. I love the first minute that a song emotionally resonates with me. Mm-hmm. I just love that. I feel like the luckiest guy in the world if I can actually work on that song to help help it be conveyed in such a way that other people are going to find it resonant as well. So then beyond that, you know, the usual stuff, pre-production is always fun because you you get to throw out a bunch of different ideas and, and you know, if the artist is willing, you get to try all of them. And then watching a band especially, you know, come to some sort of a consensus where people are fighting for their, their parts, but at the end of the day, everybody actually ends up on the same page, totally unified. Love that. Um, you know, tracking's fun. We'll admit that sometimes there were some pretty tough tracking days where <laughs> band should have been prepared and was not. But tracking days are always much more fun to me when you get everybody in the room playing together, kind of Motown or Stack style, because five minutes later, you know whether or not you have a record. You know, you listen to the playback and it either feels like a record or it doesn't. And then if you want, you know, you can go replace things for better ter- tones or whatever. But you have to have that foundation. And I remember there was a time in maybe the 80s where I'd seen some videos of, I think I actually saw Mick Fleetwood playing one drum at a time and like just playing the snare drum to a click, right? And then going back and playing the kick to a click, then playing the overheads, you know, all separate tracks to get this perfect isolation. You know, it was really cool because we hadn't heard that, but, and, and, and it kind of, kind of led to this sort of slippery slope where everybody I knew was making records like that for a little bit, you know, one part at a time in perfect isolation. And sometimes you, you know, you didn't know what you had until a couple of weeks later. And then when it became cool again to have a band in a room playing with the sound of the room, you know, making that part of the sound of the record uh, and, and getting everybody feeding off each other and maybe even breathing with the click a little bit, that got exciting to me again. Nowadays, 95% of what I do is just mixing 
you know, sometimes just the singles, other times the whole album, sometimes just one tune. And I got to say, I love that, that process because it's kind of like a microcosm of the whole thing rolled up into one day instead of, mm-hmm. you know, six weeks because I have a conversation with the artist and then we talk about the goals and I've already had my first reaction to the song. want to make sure it, it's simpatico with, with the artist vision. We talk about that and then I just start pushing up faders and, you know, it goes from sort of like that, something that's analogous to pre-production, you know, through like the basic tracks and the overdubs and the mixing and, you know, I, I try to stay away from the mastering part. You've recently relocated to Petaluma. Correct. I want it to be closer to you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Why, thank you. Do you feel like you're no longer in the fast lane? And is it easier to breathe if that if if you have stepped out of the fast lane? Oh, okay. This is going to sound horribly arrogant, but try to take it for what it is. I, I feel like I got a helicopter. You know, oh. I feel like I'm above the traffic now. You know, I've been doing this so many years that uh, some people know me, some people don't know me, and that's okay. I'm grateful that I have enough uh, repeat business that, you know, I, I make a living. I rarely have to get in the trenches and fight anything out. It just seems like by the grace of God, something happens every so often that keeps me relevant instead of a dinosaur. So I, I really don't, I don't feel that fast lane. Now, certainly I do feel like I'm not as connected to the LA scene. And it's mm-hmm. only been a month since I've been up here. Um, but, you know, I kind of felt like I was immune to it anyway. You know, I was out in Simi Valley. So I rarely wanted to get in the car and go into Hollywood or Santa Monica. But people were happy to come out to me. You know, it's like you bring some good energy to a place and it becomes a destination. So, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, as God willing, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be even better off than I was. That's good. That's good. Now, when it comes to the mixing aspect of it, do you think it's a natural inclination for engineers as they get older to track less and mix more? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's again, another really interesting question because um, tracking seems to be a luxury with everybody having a laptop and loops nowadays. Who needs to track, right? I know I'm saying that facetiously. Mm-hmm. Um, but think about it. You know, a lot of the world-class studios have gone under. Uh, the places where you would go to get a good sound, a good sound of a room. And then, you know, I don't know what your setup is like, you know, how much you work at home as opposed to commercial studios. But I know, you know, when I built my mix room, there was no place to record drums unless I wanted to sit next to them. And, you know, the whole thing about tracking, I'm just thinking about this as I'm speaking, you know, maybe a lot of it has to do with the lack of facilities, the lack of the dough that's flowing, you know, in some ways I adjusted my business to reflect the way that my fee had changed. I mean, I never announced a fee change, but I mean, you know, if anybody thinks that they really still have a fee, they're probably high or extremely lucky because, you know, <laughs> you can go to my, you know what I mean? Cause like you, you can go to my website and you can look at my fees. You know, I have three different tiers of fees you know, there's a major label fee, an indie artist fee, and then there's a sliding scale thing through Indie Pro Mix. And I actually publish them mainly because, you know, if somebody's looking for a dirt cheap thing, you know, uh, they won't even, you know, they'll they'll know right away that like they're not going to get a $70 mix or a $200 mix or a $300 mix. You know, that's, you know, I'd rather do something pro bono than do that. You know, with the fee, every case is different. So, you know, you want a starting place to talk about my fee. If you want me to lower the fee, Give me something in return. 
you know, make it exciting for me. And there are all kinds of things. I did this one deal with somebody. She was really hip. She was doing an Amy Winehouse thing and she needed one tune mixed and she didn't have enough money to do it. And I said, well, I really want to do this. You know, what could you do for me? And she said, well, your Twitter site sucks. Um, you know, I can show you how to use it. And I was like, well, okay, you know, that'll, that'll save some time. That's valuable. It totally is valuable. You know, and I was, I'm going to leave names out of it, but I talked with a number of, um, a number of our colleagues, you know, at times along the way, like, hey, what kind of money are you making right now? And they're like, every day is different. You know, uh, one of my buddies did, you know, in one week, he, he each day ranged from 300 at its low day to 2,500 on its high day. And the 2,500 was a major label thing where these people used to pay him 3,500. It was just really interesting. So I think with the tracking, just tying this all together, is that maybe there just isn't the same kind of funding. So maybe you're seeing more people mixing rather than tracking because it's easier to have a home studio, whether it's a million dollar studio or a $3,000 studio, where if you know what you're doing, you can still mix a great record. What is your reality with major labels at this point? Do you have a problem getting paid or has that has that relationship changed over the years? Oh my God, it's totally changed. So first of all, I was one of those guys where I didn't have any trouble saying, I'll come pick up a check, you know, <laughs> right. or I'll send somebody to pick up a check or whatever. You know, nine times out of 10, it would actually happen. And, you know, I, they were pretty good about paying me. But uh, again, squeaky wheel gets the grease. Nowadays, major labels, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble here, but um, for me personally, over the last few years, the only major label records that I've mixed, I haven't even talked with the label at all. Not, I, I haven't set foot in a major label office in over a year. And um, the work hasn't slowed down for me at all. Well, most of my work is indie. But usually the way that the mix comes for me is directly through the artist or the producer now. And I'm actually getting paid from the artist and producer, like even on the major label stuff. So That's nice. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean happens pretty quick. This is a little awkward sometimes when, uh, you know, the label still hasn't paid the artist and, you know, we had a deal for me to get paid on a certain date. And, you know, you got to work with people because you can always get more money, but you can never get your time back or your relationship if you really blow it. So you got to help people. You were an artist at kind of a young age. Yeah. 19. 19. Okay. So what did you learn from that experience that all the things you went through, what have you taken from that that era and applied to your era as a producer, as an engineer in dealing with artists? Again, another great question. So my hat's off to you. My experience as an artist is probably a lot different than many people because I kind of lucked into it. So it, it kind of looked like the record business was going to just hand itself to me on a silver spoon. Um, you know, a little background. I was homeless at the time. I got a call from some junkie, I believe, who was trying to make 15 bucks. He said he was an intern at a recording studio. He'd give me three hours of recording time if I would uh, give him $15. I guess he needed a fix or something. This is 19, 1981, I guess, something like that. So I, I called up a couple buddies thinking, man, even double live gonzo was like, you know, 80 minutes. I don't have three hours of songs. Didn't realize that you had to mic everything up. You know, I just thought you showed up and you started singing and you were good to go. And you had, you know, 42 minutes later, you'd have a long LP, right? <laughs> I, I literally, I had no idea. So at the end of three hours, we had two tunes done and some guy 
Ethan James, rest in peace, no relation. Ethan, you know, owned a label and he he used to play keyboards and bass and blue cheer. He owned this label and he said, hey man, that's a great tune. Who wrote it? And everybody pointed at me and and uh, he said, I'd like to offer you a record deal on the spot. I know this will be a hit on K-Rock. And I'm like, um, no, thanks. I'm a student. <laughs> I was going to UCLA at the time. <laughs> and I was homeless, right? But I was full scholarship student to UCLA. And he said, well, here's my card. When you get over that shit, give me a call. And uh, <laughs> I had this 7 a.m. honors chemistry class because I tested, you know, I tested into it. And in, for my particular major at the time, which was psychobiology, you had to take chemistry and there was a two-year wait list for it. But if you tested honors, you could get the 7 a.m. class. Now, I was gigging and I wasn't even coming home till 2 a.m., right? In Santa Monica. And, you know, when I say home, it's like wherever I could land a sofa, right? And sometimes, you know, sometimes it was on the beach. Needless to say, it was tough to make my way up to Westwood Village for a 7 a.m. class. And so I failed it twice and nearly lost my scholarship. So after the second failure, you know, I thought, hey, maybe I should do this. And I called up Ethan and I said, hey, that offer still stand? And he's like, yep, come on down, let's make a record. So like, I didn't have the whole like bidding war stuff. I mean, it was just like, here you go, right? And then wow. I worked really hard on making a great record. You know, great for me. It was the best that I could do. And Ethan put a lot into it. it took two years for it to actually come out. I remember walking on Venice, Venice Beach and I turned a corner and I heard the last half of the song blasting off the radio. And I was like, oh my God, that's great. I sure wish I had something to eat. Where am I going to sleep tonight? Wow. So again, it was a very unusual experience, but there was a lot to glean from it. One was that if somebody wants to help you, they can help you, right? And you have to be willing to help yourself, right? Don't expect somebody to do everything for you. That's one thing. And the other thing is that, you know, as an artist... I thought I was going to change the world with my guitar solo. It felt a little like Nigel Tufnell there. And, um, you know, and then eventually, I, I remember actually Ethan telling me this. He's like, hey, that's a really good idea. But, you know, one of these days you're going to look back on it and say, ah, that was just tales of an angst-ridden youth. And, <laughs> and, and he was right, you know. Now it's a lot easier to just sort of chill and give people the opportunity to help you and you help yourself and you help them. And I guess really the biggest thing is probably probably that, you know, it's some sort of variation on, on what um, Quincy Jones said. I don't remember his quote, but it was something about, you know, make sure you leave the door open so God can enter the room. You know, don't <laughs> fill it up with all your, you know, your ideas and stuff, you know, leave some room for serendipity. And I do find that that's really important, you know, putting together a team, motivating people, helping them, you know, to harness their vision to distant goals. I mean, that that's really everything that's about making a record. It's probably also everything on the other side of that too, which is, you know, helping, helping an artist navigate the waters of, you know, being an unknown to then getting a record deal and then going through the whole promotional type thing and still remaining who you are true to yourself. Yeah. So I, th I think, you know, again, all these lessons that, that I learned early on, you know, I found a way to apply and I know I've only just said one of them, but there are certainly things that, that translate. Like, um, I just remember thinking that my stuff was really important. It was important to me, but, you know, it was probably, I mean, looking back on it now, it was like fluff. It was like novelty. But it was important to me at the time. And one thing that was really great about Ethan, you know, the first producer who took a shot on me, because he not only signed me, he produced the record as well. 
he made me feel good about my art. And trust me, if you cannot make an artist feel good about what they're doing and then have the skills to help them uh, manifest their vision, you probably shouldn't be in this business. So I carry that forward with me, you know, to this day. At that time, what was your perspective of, of the record-making process and Ethan as the producer or the engineer that was in the room? Did you have a, a, a perspective at the time of what you thought of these people? And Oh, yeah. I mean, they were... I couldn't believe that I had that opportunity. You know, I was okay as a guitarist at the time. You know, I learned really quickly how to do what I wanted to do, but was still pretty rough around the edges. And those guys taught me how to listen, you know, especially with respect to groove, you know, like, hey, you don't need to drive the bus. I mean, think about it like you're on a big, long surfboard and you're on the wave. All you got to do is just drop in, just wait for it and then drop in and, and you know, you know, just be there with the groove, you know, don't try and push the groove, you know, let the drummer do that. So that was a very practical thing. It probably took me 10 years to really, truly understand groove. The thing that, that really stands out to me was that I had some good ideas, but these guys just made them so much better. And it was always collaborative too. It was never like, hey, you do this. And I think it was probably because Ethan in particular was very wise and, you know, never said my way or the highway. You know, he just had a way of kind of, asking me what it was that I was going to try to do. You know, what would I want to do? And say, oh, do you mean like this or like that? And then he'd come up with these really cool keyboard parts that made my guitar parts sound even better. I am a notoriously bad singer. And <laughs> that album sounded pretty cool, I got to say. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question about, you know, what my perspective was. I'm just riffing with you and fi- trying to get in, into your mindset of that time and what you thought of these guys. Really good producers. Those that can communicate their ideas to the artist of what to do or what not to do. That's an art. It I is. I mean, how to, how to speak to somebody. And I'll just point the finger at myself. I know that this about myself. I know that sometimes I can come off very harsh without mm-hmm. meaning to come mm. off harsh. Right. I'm fascinated by those who have a gentle approach to how they speak, yet they can be very effective and they can get things moving in a session. Yeah. Yeah. I've had to refine that personally over years. I don't think I've ever, well, certainly not over the last 20 or 30 years, had to fight for an idea because I, I feel like no good idea is ever wasted. So instead of getting in a fight with somebody, you know, just sort of file away that idea as a future chop and put it in the bag of tricks. You know, that makes it a lot easier to just let go and make a 180 degree turn and try something else. You know, I learned that I had to be a different guy for different people. You know, some people just want a confidant. Mm -hmm. Some people want a stern hand to rule them. Some people just want to be told what to do. They're like, I want to hit. I don't care if it sounds like Katy Perry or the Bee Gees, you know, or Nirvana you know, just give me a hit. And other people are, you know, they obsess about the panning of the hi-hat. You know, they obsess about 1 dB of, you know, 100 cycles on a snare drum. So you have to be a different person to each of them, but you still have to be Matt or you still have to be Michael. You know, you still have to be, you know, whoever you, whoever you are. So one, you know, technique I can share that has served me very well over the years is always, always, always go to the mat for having a unified, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, unity, just for having unity in the control room and on the tracking floor and in pre-production. It's like you make it clear that this is a safe zone. The rest of the world does not 
have to hear anything. They don't even get to hear anything until we decide it's ready to show to the public. So here is where we can try all of our differences without being laughed at or without being, you know, mocked or whatever. You know, we, we get to try what we want to do here. You know, you, the drummer, have this great idea. You, the guitarist, have a great idea. They're totally opposite. Let's try them both. And I swear to you, if either one of you guys sabotages, you know, the other guy's idea, I'm going to grab your instrument and I'm going to play the part myself. And you don't want that to happen. So show me that you're a pro, because if you act like a pro, I just may hire you on somebody else's record, okay? So be a pro and play what the singer wants, okay? And now singer, be a pro and sing what the guitarist wants, and drummer, be a pro and do what those guys want. So all of a sudden, you try three different ideas, and instead of bickering for an hour and a half, literally 12 minutes will go by, and you'll be able to listen to playback on three different ideas. You almost unanimously pick the same idea. Meaning the one, there's one that clearly stands out as the best. And so I find that if you really have to be firm, it's like, okay, let's take the emotion out of it. Let's just be pros. Let's just step up. Let's try it. And then we'll listen back totally honestly, and we'll pick the right way. And if you still can't decide, we'll cut two or we'll cut three versions of the song, figure it out later. I absolutely love that idea of unity because inevitably when you come to the studio with any band, there's already a dynamic that has been established. Right. You know, let's say the band's been together for two years. Maybe that drummer and that lead singer already have Mm -hmm. some kind of weird dynamic between them. And somebody's ideas can can generally be the ones that get tossed under the rug and while somebody else is crowned the Mm -hmm. king of, of good ideas. And your idea levels the playing field and gives everybody an equal say to try yeah, things out. Well, I love that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you love that. I, I actually love that too. And I certainly didn't invent it. Just like, you know, when you go into the studio, you can't forget who you are as a person. And, you know, you talked about this hybrid mix technique, but you also talked about the hybrid human. Uh, you know, another part of me that's uh, that's very important is, uh, is there's a spiritual side to me. And, and part of my spiritual code or belief is that you have to be unified. Because like... Even if, well, let's see, I mean, this is primarily a Judeo-Christian country. So if you go back to the Bible, there's some verse that says something about two people working together for a common cause or a thousand strong. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And then um, in my faith, the faith I identify with, Baha'i faith, you know, there there are so many different writings about, uh, about unity. It's like, it's better for everybody to be unified and wrong than it is to be divided and right. Because if you are divided, you're, you know, you're, you're, it's, you're going to torpedo whatever your endeavor is. But if you are unified and wrong, you're going to really quickly realize that you went the wrong way, right? And now you have to make a course correction and everybody's mm-hmm. in it together. Michael James here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a sponsor break here for a second. I want to mention to you Audio-Technica, who has been a great supporter of the show for some time. And we really love these guys. They make great products. They make an array of microphones and headphones, turntable products, and a zillion other little doohickeys that we love to buy. And I want to encourage you to head on over to their website, which is at audio-technica.com, and have a look around. They have a store built into there these days, so you can buy products right off of the website. And you know me. I'm a big fan of the headphones, the ATH M40Xs, uh, my BP40 mic, which I'm talking to you into right now. And they just make some fantastic products. And I think uh, we all own something 
from Audio-Technica in our toolkit. So head on over there and uh, have a look around. Until then, let's get back to it. Michael James here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I'd love to make sure we touch on your your days working for a record label. You were uh, you were made an A and R guy, right? Yes, I, you were made. It's it's um, it's not like it's a ma- mafia thing. <laughs> Almost, right? He's a he's a made man. So you saw it from the artist perspective. You've seen it from behind the glass. What's the A and R perspective taught you? Because we're always taught, not taught. Lawyers and A and R people are the ones that always get the shit. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the ones that are always, you know, people bag right. <laughs> on. So tell me about being an A&R guy. I loved it. Um, again, I had just like, you know, starting out as an artist, I had a completely different um, experience to most A&R people. You know, back in the glory days, you know, I used to joke, but truthfully, that I could have a free lunch twice a week, 50 weeks a year and not see the same A&R person until the next year. So, you know, there was there was a time we had like 100 people where I had close relationships with them, right? And, you know, my job looked different than everybody else's. Dan Rothschild knew Jack Holzman, who was the founder of, what is it, Electra? I think he signed Joni Mitchell, The Doors. Uh, and, you know, Paul, Dan's father, produced The Doors. So Jack was this legend at the time. He was chief technologist um, of Time Warner. Maybe AOL was part of it at that time. I'm not sure. It's like 94, 95. So Jack was looking for a head of A&R, and Dan was one of his stringers. Stringer meaning like a scout type person. You know, they'd give a, they'd basically give reimbursements to, you know, let you in clubs, and you'd send a report, and maybe they'd send you 100 or 200 bucks a week so, you, a week so that you could have a drink or something. Or, or if you liked something, you know, maybe take the artist out for a burger or something like that. You know, just a really small, small bit of money. But these stringers were you know, really old school and Jack, Jack loved having them. So, you know, Dan said, well, you got to meet Michael, you know, he's hot right now. And, you know, he's really a music lover. He's kind of a musicologist. I think you guys would really get along. I'll actually skip the process of getting the job because it was, if you want to come back to it or have another podcast or something, we can go there because it was pretty crazy. But, um, the perspective that I had was, was great and unique because, Jack basically wanted me to find great music. He had a motto that was called follow the music. I think he even wrote a book called follow the music and everybody else I knew was kind of scared, but I wasn't scared. You know, my friends at other labels and I remember Ken Kushnick who managed me for a while back a long time ago said, God forbid that person actually likes an artist because then he'd have to do something about it. What do you mean you'd have to do something about it? What's the problem with that? And he's like, well, one failure and he could be out, right? So as long as you keep stringing people along and just organizing flights and, you know, working with the marketing team, this, that, and the other, you know, you can stay busy without actually having to sign a new artist. It's like, well, where's the fun in that? You know, and and fortunately, Jack sheltered me from that. It's like, if I came into the office, he's like, what are you doing here? Go out and find a band, you know, find an artist. <laughs> like, well, Jack, I actually... uh to make some photocopies today. He's like, I'll buy you a plain paper fax and a photocopier. You know, just, you know, go find bands. Um, so, and, you know, I'd have to go in for, you know, meetings and stuff like that. But, you know, you didn't want to see me sitting there on the phone. Um, so for him, for him, it was like really a creative thing that he wanted. And I remember one time liking a band and 
asking him, Jack, what do you think about this? And he's like, I think it's really cool. You know, do you have some concerns about it? I said, yeah, the marketing department says they have no idea what to do with it. They can't sell it. I was like, well, I guess it's time to start looking for a new marketing department with a wink. And like, uh, I didn't mean to get these guys fired. He's like, no, no, just tell them that if you like this band, they have to find a way to market it if they want to keep their jobs because they are marketing. You are A&R, you know, artist and repertoire. It was really a great opportunity for me to do that. And, you know, having made a bunch of records before that as a producer, you know, some as an artist, I, you know, I, I kind of knew what all these artists were going through, you know, in one way or another, I had already been there. So it was pretty easy for me to bond with people and, uh, yeah, just, you know, bond with them and understand where they're coming from and understand how, like I said earlier, you know, the art is really important to them and they have to feel good about it. Had you been an engineer prior to the a position? Yeah. Yep. So you had already had that perspective yeah. as well. Hmm. Yeah, the, the the chain of events was basically, um, you know, recording artist, then washed up, um, you know, by age 23. <laughs> Then seeing a buddy making $175 a day cash, which back in those days, you know, 30 years ago, that was pretty good. Oh, yeah. I said, Can I get some of that? You know, I because I'd, I'd been around the studios. I'd been, you know, producing all the local artists that, you know, local indie artists, you know, in a college town, there was always somebody to produce. So I was getting some chops in a way that still kept me under the radar so that if I really screwed something up, nobody would know, you know, nobody on the major label level would know. I'm not saying I screwed stuff up, but you know, you, best producers are typically the ones that get to work with the best artists, right? And so it takes a while for you to right. get the credibility where you can actually attract an artist. So it just sort of went through all these different, uh, you know, these different levels of artists and, you know, had a couple lucky breaks, you know, with the whole sub pop thing and Irving Azoff thing with that group, Too Much Joy. That Basically the chain of events was, you know, going through that and then saying like, okay, I've seen enough engineers do their thing. Ethan James, the guy who produced my first record, handed me the keys to his studio and he said, it's yours from midnight till 8 a.m. And so I was going to UCLA, I was uh, racing bikes for the university. I would do whatever I could to make a few bucks in the evening. And then at midnight, I would show up and record all my friends for free. <laughs> and then, you know, eventually uh, became the A&R guy uh, before going full-time into mixing. So yeah, the A&R thing, circling back to that again, really had a lot of opportunities and and there's a, a job that I think many people had taken too cavalier and I totally understand why A&R people are, are you know made fun of what was the classic joke it was like what's the A&R standard response to what do you think it's I don't know what do you think right <laughs> right 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 completely forgotten all my A&R jokes and actually I gotta add something about this a lot of A&R people have gotten really bad raps because they don't quite tell you no, but they don't tell you yes either. They just kind of keep you hanging, right? Right. And it's part of the job. It's like, you don't want to destroy somebody. And at the same time, you know, you don't want to give them false hope. You just try and be a little bit sober about, instead of looking at all the bad shit, you're just like, okay, well, here's one place where you guys can improve. improve. You know, the worst case scenario is, is you know, that whole Terry Melcher and uh, Charles Manson thing, you know, reject the guy and he goes over and kills the wrong people trying to kill you. You know, the whole helter-skelter thing? Right. Yeah, so right. I mean, you know, I've, I've actually seen people go off about like, what, my art could actually make you, 
you know, and so you're missing a chance here by not working with me and fuck you. Yeah. So I've seen, I've seen people go off. Do you ever watch Shark Tank? I've never seen it. Okay. So. Well, the, you know, basically you've got people coming in front of a, a group of inv potential investors mm -hmm. to pitch their product. Okay. And when they clearly can't answer all the questions about the money or the plan or reality, these people turn them away. And I've, and it's interesting to watch the, the contestants on that show just flip out like, you're really missing an opportunity here. You're, you could, I could be, I could make you a lot of money. And right. they're just like, bye. Right, right. Well, <laughs> see, you got to be careful with that as A&R person for, you know, not just the reason that I mentioned, but also if you want to put positivity into the world. And, you know, I do. I mean, if I get the chance to do something good as opposed to do something bad, I'd rather go for the good. And I've seen things as simple as just smiling at a person and asking, how is your day going when I'm checking out? you know, at the health food store or something like that. How are you doing? Wow, thanks for asking. Nobody's asked me that today. Man, I actually needed a smile. Thank you. Okay. So when you're talking with somebody who's an entrepreneur, like on Shark Tank or um, a recording artist, you know, you want to give them some sort of realistic hope. It's like, you know, just start someplace. The one thing that's good, find that one good thing and have them build off that. And and be a, be a person of your word as well. And And I think you know, try and do bold things with your life, but do them in a way that rises the tide so that all boats float higher. I'll give you an example, um, partially because it's a good opportunity to share a really cool story. I was new to the whole A&R thing, and the first time that I was getting on a plane uh, to go out of town to sign a band that I found in the uh, un unsolicited, that was the word, unsolicited box of tapes, uh, there was actually a CD in there, and it was from a band called Sal's Birdland, S-A-L apostrophe S, Birdland. They had, unbeknownst to me, been a Canadian hit band called One to One before that, and eventually became Artificial Joy Club, um, which I signed to Interscope after I signed them to uh, Warner Discovery. Really liked this band. I said, Jack, I like this band. Um, actually, I love this band. And he said, you know, come in and play it for me. And sat down and we listened to their entire CD. He said, so tell me what do you think, you know, tell me everything you think about it. And I said, well, I love it. And it has that sort of Canadian thing about it, which was a lot more vibey and less punchy and in your face. But I think in the US, if we just kind of beef up the drums and guitars, you know, a little bit of additional production if they're into it and remix the album, I don't think we have to change a single note of the vocal performance. And he said, okay, I hear that. And he loved it. And he said, you know, do what you can to get this band. You know, I wanted to give them 200,000 bucks to make the record. And he said, you got 40. <laughs> okay. So now here's where it gets really interesting with the A&R thing. I asked Jack, have you been to Ottawa? And he says, yes. He says, it's a small town. You know, you could land two hours before the gig, the showcase, and, and you'll be fine. And I thought, you know what, just in case something goes wrong, I'm going to get there like eight hours before and I'll just cruise around the town. It's the capital of Canada, right? And I hear they have tulips and stuff like that and national galleries and all kinds of cool stuff and Canadians. I wanted to experience what those guys were like, right? So um, I booked the flight for early and there was a connecting flight, you know, go from LA to Toronto and then at Toronto you take a little puddle jumper over to Ottawa. And I had been in line for hours now trying to get my connecting flight, you know, and, and everybody was, just, the place was packed. People were in sleeping bags and asked what's going on. They said, man, we have the worst fog here since like 1947 or something like that. 
or in 47 years, whatever. And uh, nothing's going anywhere. And I said, well, there's a flight going now someplace that's taken off. And they said, yeah, every time something takes off, it turns around. It's like, well, I got I to get where I'm going. Uh, how far is Montreal from Ottawa? Because that's where the next flight was going. And it was actually taxiing. You know, I asked the Canadians if, if I can actually cut in front and talk to the, the attendant to see about getting me on this flight. The whole thing about the Canadians and their spontaneous apology is so true. It's so, I just love it. It's like, hey, do you mind if I cut in front of you? Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> like, sorry to get in your way. <laughs> it's like, no, no, I'm cutting in front of you. I'm the sorry one, not you. I apologize. I wonder what the, I wonder what the Canadians <laughs> listening think. Oh, well, they're probably laughing about it because uh, I hate to generalize, but they really do have great senses of humor. But at any rate, so I... I um, you know, I go up to the attendant and say, can I get on that flight that just left? <laughs> and the attendant says, uh, yeah, yeah, we can, you know, and, and they actually called the flight back, which would never happen now. Okay. This is, <laughs> this is probably 1994, I'm thinking. So, um, you know, they, they call it back. You know, I, I go on there. Fortunately, I was flying with only carry-on stuff. You know, I was told, you know, that I can probably hire a car. Uh, and then somebody says, well, in a blizzard, that's probably not going to be, uh, not going to happen. So I'm thinking, great, here I am in, uh, I'm, I'm heading to Montreal and I'm not going to be able to get a car to get to Ottawa. I'm going to miss the showcase. This is my first A&R assignment and it's with Jack Holtzman. You know, I do not want to let the legend down, right? So I, uh, get on the flight. I stand up on the plane and say, hi, everybody. My name is Michael. And, and I, I work for Warner Brothers Records. If somebody will give me a drive, or, you know, drive me from uh, Montreal to Ottawa, I will give you 20 compact discs. Because, you know, at the time, that was like worth $400. And it was CDs. Nowadays, you know, put a, you know, pile up two or three giant tables full of CDs and kids won't even look at them. But at any rate, so, so I said... You know, 20 CDs and the whole time we're driving, I will consult with you if you want to know anything about the record business. And sure enough, one guy, you know, two thirds of the way back in the plane said, um, I have a son, you know, who's a jazz musician. I'll give you a ride if we can bring him. And I'm like, done. And wow. uh, the person sitting next to him gave up her seat, took the seat and we clicked right away. This guy was wonderful. And then I start to ask, so tell me more about your son. What's up? And he says, well, he's into jazz. And I'm really excited because I'm a huge jazz fan. And he plays trombone. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> what am oh. I going to do with that? <laughs> For You know, the whole consultation is going to be like, play a different instrument, dude. Right. Um, I'm joking when I say that. But, you know, it certainly <laughs> isn't the easiest place to start. So at any rate, we land there and it takes a long time. It takes like three and three quarter hours finally get to the hotel as the band's gig is ending. I'm waiting oh. for my cab. I hear the concierge saying, no, no, this person's not there. And I'm yelling, I'm him. I'm him. Let me, give me the phone. Let me talk. So finally the cab came. The band was waiting around after their showcase. I ended up hanging out with them, spent all night just shooting the shit. And it's like, sorry, I did give it my best effort. And, you know, they'd been through a series of disappointments. As it turns out that was like the fourth record deal that they had at that time with a major. Well, it was about to be the fourth one, right? They'd been through three already. So, you know, we were shooting the shit and I met their manager and um, he said, well, maybe I can put together a gig tomorrow night. So the next night we went to a steakhouse 
And I swear to you, there were people with arms the size of Popeye's, Popeye's arms, you know, those forearms, giant things. And they're <laughs> listening to this like modern rock band, we called it at the time, or alternative, something like that. Really sure. cool band. And they're cutting steaks with these steak knives and they all have Caterpillar on their hat or John Deere. Don't give a shit about the band. As a matter of fact, I thought we were going to get beaten up every time that the, uh, that the manager and I would clap after a song. So we're, and we're sitting on like redwood pine, uh, redwood, redwood uh, picnic benches, you know, because that <laughs> right up at the front of the stage. I felt so bad for this band, but they were rocking. They were playing like they meant it. And so saw them and they turned out to be real. So I offered them a deal and they said, great. Uh, now, can I stay with you guys for, you know, until the fog lifts? And I ended up spending like three or four days up there with the band because I couldn't get home. And so as soon as I get back to LA, you know, I'd become a little bit of a legend and all the Canadian artists were calling up and saying, Michael James, is it true? Is what true? <laughs> the hitchhiking through the blizzard. <laughs> hitchhiking through a blizzard. How true do you want it to be? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, there was sort of like this whole whole thing there. So, but, you know, the, it sounds like a tangent here, but there's actually a valuable lesson in there. If you show to any artist that you're willing to go to the mat for that artist, they will take care of you, right? And and we all need to do that with the whole changing, you know, changing landscape and even circling back to, you know, tracking versus mixing, you know, and my theory that, well, maybe one of the reasons that we're doing more mixing than tracking as we age is that, you know, we, we're accustomed to doing it with much bigger budgets and we just don't want to go down that rabbit hole, you know, <laughs> let somebody else deal with it and let's, you know, let's clean up the mess, you know, by mixing. So yeah, so that band, you know, they, they stayed with me after I was, uh, let's just say exited or disappeared from uh, Warner Discovery when there was a corporate reorganization that had Sire take it over. Um, and then I, uh, I I actually brought them over to Interscope and signed them there. And uh, they had probably their best work over there. I want to talk to you about mentorship. What's your mentorship experience been over, over the years, being those that have mentored you? Is, is there a key relationship or two that have really been instrumental in shaping who you are now? Oh, yeah, Definitely. Uh, so it started with Ethan James, uh, you know, in the music business. But but even before that, um, there's a person you have not heard of, and I'll tell you her name, Marilyn Levine. She was a yoga instructor, vegetarian chef, psychotherapist, superwoman, like one of the first people I ever heard of who had uh, chronic fatigue syndrome or Epstein-Barr because she was superwoman, right? You know, raising kids. Um, her husband was a guitarist who was in the diamond jewelry industry as well. I happened to be crashing on the sofa at their neighbor's place and the neighbor wasn't available to babysit. So, you know, the neighbor's mother said, well, get Mikey to do it. He'll babysit. The kids and I just hit it off. And the true story is because their parents would cook them eggs, but as vegans, they didn't know how to cook eggs. Uh, but I knew how to cook eggs and the kids loved him. And they said, can we get him again? It's like, I don't babysit. And it's like, well, okay, I babysit. I forgot that you get paid for it. And so eventually when they were finalizing their divorce, they wanted a nanny. And so my first forays into the record business, you know, where I told you I was homeless quite a bit of the time I was sleeping on their sofa and they eventually, you know, made a room for me down in the basement and I was able to get my chops up and everything. And the reason that I cite Marilyn Levine as as a big mentor there uh, was because no matter how outlandish anything that I came up with as an idea was, 
she always had a really grounded perspective. And she would say like, hey, this is good that you're talking about this because consultation is, you know, really a great thing that's going to ensure that you make good decisions. Look for consultation with your trusted advisors in things big and small, which funny enough is a Baha'i principle as well, but I didn't know it huh. at the time. It's just that whole thing about like you can, you don't have to be one person in a box. You can be a chef and you can be a psychotherapist and you can, you know, be a yogini. You know, she could do all those things. And so I just figured, huh. why not? I want to be a, I want to race mountain bikes and I want to race road bikes and I want to make music. I want to make records and I want to go to museums and I want to hike on trails and I want to fall passionately in love and stay married to the same woman for a hundred years. You know, I wanted to be all those things. So then, you know, getting into the record business, obviously Ethan James, who I mentioned, um, you know, was a mentor, but then the place where it really, really um, developed my work ethic was when I connected with a guy who's still like a big brother to me, a guy named Keith Wexler. And Keith, you might know as a producer for Keith Emerson, uh, Greg Lake, ELP. Um, he mixed the Beach Boys Kokomo. And I remember getting a phone call from him that was hilarious. It was a voice message. Um, and it said, number two, with a bullet. <laughs> and the next week it was, of course, number one. And so, you know, Keith used to bring me out on all kinds of crazy gigs. Um, you know, he taught me the studio rap that we use for cables so they don't, you know, tangle up. But he also uh, had me cut my chops as, uh, or cut my teeth as um, like a monitor mixer. And if mm. you're working with, uh, well, the band was Free Flight at the time. Uh, I don't know if you remember those guys. Mm -mm. Great sort of jazz classical amalgamation. Uh, did a really good album produced by Stanley Clark. Uh, but these guys were all virtuosos. And, uh, you know, Keith just said, all you need to know about this job is that you're the guy with the bullseye either on his hat or on his chest, you know, because everybody's going to be looking to you to make their shit sound right. And I remember, you know, that, that's where I remember. I, I, I'm not really a good lip reader, but I can always tell when somebody's saying, more me, more me. And the finger goes up, right? Hopefully the right finger, not the wrong one. Yeah, so, so Keith just, everything that he did was going to be done well, no matter the circumstances. And he was the rock of Gibraltar in the middle of so many shit storms. But you always knew like, oh, we got Keith. We got the right guy for the job. Um, so he really helped me develop that. And I think, you know, I think I kind of innately had a good portion of that. But what do they say about natural talent? Sometimes you have to work really hard to bring it out. And Keith, Keith is my guy. And I hope he's listening to this because uh, I'm eternally grateful for that. And then, you know, along the way, there are some other people who, you know, don't like, you know, they don't even realize that they're mentors, um, but your relationship sort of turns into the thing where you guys are just buddies, but then at just the right time, somebody accidentally or inadvertently steps into a mentoring role and then the table can turn. It can go the other way. You know, it's a strong word to use, but, you know, my friend Rob Chirelli and I have, uh, you know, we're both very confident in our skill sets. We're both really good at getting the gigs, good at balancing our lives. But, uh, you know, when, when one of us needs to really get a good down-to-earth perspective, you know, Rob or I'll pick up the phone and call each other and it's totally equal two-way street. Yeah, I'm grateful to have him around. I want to point out that I think what's really great about your story is 
some people's careers are they're insular. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like records, 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 records. That's mm -hmm. it. Music business people, that's it. Mm -hmm. Even in the mentor that you mentioned earlier, Marilyn Levine, she was outside of the music business. And Correct. when it comes to, I think, being a recording professional of any type, um, it's good to get advice from outside of our industry in general. Absolutely. A different perspective and, and different activities to mm -hmm. really give you the 30,000 foot view. Absolutely. You know, along those lines, John Lang that I was telling you about, the Curie and Broken Wings writer, he, one time I asked him about writer's block because he hadn't turned out anything in a little bit. And I said, are you worried about it? You know, because I've heard so many people having this fear of writer's block. And he said, absolutely not. I call it filling up, filling up. So what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, if you've got nothing to write about, go out and live some life. Then you'll have plenty about which to write. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, we just scratched the surface, I know, of of a very long career that has, you know, tapped into A&R, art, being an artist, being a producer, being an engineer, and being a cyclist on top of all of that. So uh, thank you. Matt, it's been my pleasure. And I'm looking forward to connecting with you face-to-face. Uh, uh, yes. because we got some plans. We had talked about stuff. We and do. We do. We will, we will get together and, and take over the world. <laughs> who, who gets to be pinky and who gets to be the brain? <laughs> Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's right. Cause we're all in this thing together. That's right. All right, man. Well, you have a, uh, a great evening and I will chat with you later. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. Bye -bye. Michael James here on the working class audio podcast. Great perspectives and what a career. Very interesting. Very cool. Hope you enjoyed that. We are out of time, so we, of course, have to thank our friends. And uh, we start with Mr. Cliff Truesdell. And, of course, we uh, have to thank Chuck Smith and Cole Williams for their help on the show. And we want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Lawton Audio, Audio Technica, and Focal Monitors. And as usual, I appreciate the time you've spent with me. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.